All right, brothers and sisters. We're going to resume our study of Matthew, and we're going to be looking predominantly at the transfiguration. Uh, but if you were here last week, perhaps it won't be a surprise to you that even though the note in the bulletin says that our passage begins at 17.1, we're actually going to read beginning at 16.27. And there's a reason why, which we will discuss in just a few short moments. So please, beginning at Matthew 16, verse 27 through 17, verse 13, the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> writes thus. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but... The word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for giving us this glimpse. Thank you, Jesus, for not just giving us hard truth, but giving us hope. Thank you. Please be with us now as we look into this passage. For the sake of our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we saw how Jesus stressed the importance of not just identifying him properly, but, but in comprehending him correctly 
It's not sufficient to simply say that Jesus is the Christ. We, we have to understand what that means, that he came not to pursue glory, he came to pursue a path that led to the cross for salvation. But then Jesus goes further and he calls us as disciples to a life of cross-bearing, a life of denying ourselves, dying to self, and living to Christ. And he presents us with what to our human ears is a ridiculous paradox, that to him who seeks to save his life, he will what? Lose it. But to the one who loses his life for my sake, he will what? Find it, keep it, save it, whatever your version says. But the idea that you gain by losing, or that you lose by gaining, doesn't jive with the flesh. There's many paradoxes in the kingdom, but the paradox of faith goes straight through the valley of suffering. In fact, so central is the idea of suffering to the mission of Christ that when John Bunyan was reflecting on this in the 1600s and he wrote his great allegory, uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he, he writes that Jesus made his summer cottage in the valley of humiliation. Jesus hung out in precisely where we by any means necessary, seek to flee. Jesus is well acquainted with our sorrows. He's well acquainted with suffering. But the pattern set by Jesus is one in which we are too called to bear our cross, die to self, live for him and his purposes. He sets the agenda. And it can seem, brothers and sisters, like a lot now, with all that Jesus teaches about the nature of discipleship, it can feel, if, if we step out and, and, and for the sake of argument, acknowledge some impious thoughts. Surely I am not alone in having occasional impious thoughts. But for example, what kind of bill of goods is Jesus selling me here? He calls me to a life where I have to die, 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 hard, hard, hard. He's not promising to make my problems go away. He's not promising to fix my life. He's not promising to, to make me have a healthy, happy experience here. Die, 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 suffer, 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 renounce, 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 all for some good that, that, that I have to hope I get. When every day between now and then may just be one giant kick in the shin. What kind of savior is that? Now, that is impious. But I'm going to wager that as you've experienced protracted seasons of hardship, you start wondering what kind of savior is Jesus? And guess what? Jesus knows that we're going to wonder. If this is all suffering, if this is all hardship, what, how do I know there's glory coming? How do I know? 
And we have the kind of God who, although he could say, because I told you, that's why, he's the kind of God who accommodates our frailty. And he doesn't just say, I told you so, that's why. He wants you to know glory is coming. How do we know that? That's what the transfiguration is all about. The reason the transfiguration in each gospel is right where it is. It comes on the heel of Jesus and his teaching about the demands of discipleship and how it's just, it, it's, it's a life of denial. Because he wants you to know that the glory is coming. And so the transfiguration serves the purpose of being a sneak peek, a preview of sorts. It's the, it's the appetizer to whet the appetite. The transfiguration is God's preemptive answer to our fears and doubts so what the transfiguration teaches us is that although it's true that the Christian life is going to be characterized by a lot of hardship and struggle, and there's going to be a lot of unpleasant things, nonetheless, nonetheless, it's not going to be utterly devoid of glimpses of glory. Because God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is growing. So although it may be hard to see at times, its presence is real. The kingdom, as Jesus has taught us in, in multiple places, it's, it starts small and grows. I mean, think about the metaphors that Jesus has used to describe the kingdom just just in this book not not factoring in metaphors from the other gospels but it's it's like a man who sows seeds and over time they grow they grow and if you're if you're like me and you take a trip during growing season it's kind of amazing because you come back and it's like magic it's just there but if you're there every day and you're watching it, you, you don't see it growing. It just does. It's like, it's like yeast that works its way through the dough. And one of the cool things about modern technology is that you can set your camera there and record the time lapse so that you can like speed it up and watch what takes place ordinarily in real time, super slow. You can watch it take place before your eyes that the yeast works its way through. It, it's, it's like a mustard seed that, it's a super small seed. Have you ever, have you ever seen a mustard seed? I mean, it's, it's really tiny. But it grows to be this, this huge bush. But not overnight. The kingdom has come. Jesus has been saying this. In fact, John the Baptist prepared the way for him by pointing out to people that the kingdom of God was at hand. 
It was right there, guys. We're on the very precipice. Jesus repeats that at the start of his ministry. The apostles repeat it when they go out on their evangelistic mission. But specifically, he tells us that the kingdom has come in, in 9-1. Chapter 9, verse 1 of, the, of, of this, where they're accusing him of, of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes, if I'm casting out demons by the power of the devil, then his house is divided and it cannot stand. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom has come. But yet, to this point, Jesus has said that the kingdom of God has been progressively moving and marching and advancing under duress. Evil men have attempted to thwart assault, attack, undermine. And the kingdom of God experiences violence. But yet, it grows. But the kingdom is here. The disciples have seen the evidence of the kingdom. They've seen the miracles. They've seen, they've seen the crowds. They've seen the wonders. But you know what they had not seen? The glory. No glory. Familiarity breeds contempt, they say. So imagine being around Jesus and you see that he sweats and stinks like any other person. People got disillusioned with Jesus because he didn't make all their wildest dreams come true. And it's easy to think that the disciples struggled with grasping what Jesus says. I mean, have you ever wondered why was it so hard for them to grasp what he says when he says it plainly? They're going to crucify me and I'm going to rise from the dead. He says it plainly and, and they still don't get it. Because it's hard to take someone seriously when you see and they perceive to be a normal human. Devoid of glory, the disciples would be prone to wondering, how do I know that the glory is in fact coming? How do I know? And so Jesus gives this episode to us to tell you, you will see glimpses of the kingdom's glory. So when we look at the transfiguration, it's important to wonder, is this what he's talking about in verse 28? Or is Jesus talking about something else? So very briefly, I want to look at verses 27 and 28. That's why I had you read them. If you would please look at your Bible, we're going to go through this quickly. Because there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about what, what 28 is talking about. So very quickly, verse 27 clearly refers to the judgment. 
okay? The second return of Christ, the judgment. It clearly refers to, he's going to pay each one according to what they've done. That, that, that's the judgment. The question is, does verse 28 refer to the same thing as verse 27? That's the question. So, again in a nutshell, no. He does not mean the same thing for, for two reasons. One, in verse 28, he says that some will not taste death until they see the kingdom. Until. Okay, well, at the second coming of Christ, there's no more death. So there's no, they won't die until, they won't die at all. All the apostles died. But secondarily, the, the, the big, quick, easy reason why most uh, have, throughout history, have immediately said this, does, verse 28 does not refer to the second judgment, is Jesus says with certainty here, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom and its glory. And if that refers to the second coming of Christ, Jesus cannot make such a statement because just a few chapters later, by his own admission, he doesn't know when the second coming is. So if by his own admission he doesn't know when the second coming is, how can he be saying here with certainty that some won't die until it happens? That's why conservative Orthodox Christian scholars understand that when Jesus speaks here in verse 27 and 28, he's not speaking of the same event. Verse 27 refers to the judgment. Verse 28 is a verily, an amen, a true statement, a truly I say to you statement, that even though the judgment with all of its full unveiled glory is on display, some of you aren't even going to die. And you will have seen the foretastes of it. So verse 28 refers to the foretaste, the preview of things to come. And what does it refer to? The resurrection? Pentecost? The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 perhaps? And, and there's good arguments that can be put out for any of those views. I would suggest to you that the safest answer is to just see what Scripture itself says. We believe in the, in the analogy of faith, that Scripture is its own best interpreter. And so I suggest to you that what the Bible itself says is that the transfiguration is in view here. But, here's the but. Each of these other things that's gonna happen, the, the resurrection, Pentecost, AD 70, while not the transfiguration the event, they are in the same keeping of glimpses of glory that the re transfiguration represents and points to us that we will have. 
Here's why I believe we should just let Scripture interpret it for us. The transfiguration was of singular importance. It, it indelibly imprinted those who saw it, the three men who saw it. I'm sorry, I don't know if it indelibly imprinted James because he died or was killed before he could write anything. But the two who survived long enough to write something wrote about it. And it made an impression. So for example, have you ever wondered why in John 1.14, John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his what? His glory. Glory as of the only begotten son from the father. What glory is that talking about? Just the mere fact that he was here? The unassumed, quiet, simple glory? No. Peter elaborates. Peter in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18 writes, We did not follow devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain." The Bible teaches that the transfiguration was the moment when Jesus Christ's glory and majesty was unveiled. And three out of 12 saw it. Some indeed got to see the glory before they died. So, what is this? This is amazing, this, this transfiguration. Understand that this event takes place for our comfort. You are having a hard slog of it in life, and it will be tempting to get weighed and bogged down by all the hardship and disappointment and hurt. You will see glimpses of the glory. Because Jesus indeed has the glory. So, some highlights from the transfiguration and then three points that it's about. They go up the mountain. It's amazing. Mark emphasizes that his clothes became whiter than any, any launderer could bleach them. Luke speci uh, specifies that his face was changed. What does that mean? Does it, does it just mean that it turned White, or does it mean that his like facial structure changed? Does it mean that the, the look, people have a look to them that you associate with them, that his, his bearing changed? We don't know. But the transfigured were, is metamorpho, metamorphosized. He was transformed before their eyes. And, Mar and Matthew, of course, his face shines like the sun and his clothes became white like light. It was an awesome sight. And again, it was so awesome that it left that indelible imprint on both Peter and John. 
And then Moses and Elijah appear. No, they aren't transfigured. There's no word about them shining like light too. They're just there. But they're there. That's awesome. How do they know? How do you know who these two dudes are? Were they wearing name tags? I don't know. Did Jesus introduce them? Did they introduce themselves? Or did the Spirit just impress it upon them so they knew? I don't know. It's not important. What is important is that Moses and Elijah were there. They get this glimpse of glory. And and they can hardly handle it. They fall on the ground terrified. Decades later, John gets a, 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 a bigger dose of glory in Revelation, and it just about kills him. So what we see is that this glory that's unveiled, God gives us only glimpses because when we see glory, it about kills us. We get the doses we can handle. But then there's a cloud, a bright cloud that comes, which is a standard theophany in the Old Testament. That God comes with clouds. And Jesus himself is going to reference this later in the book when he's going to speak about coming with the clouds. And and God's uh, voice speaks. And here's the important part. This is the distinction between Uh, Jesus being affirmed at his baptism and Jesus being affirmed here. Here, the disciples are addressed. This is my son. Listen to him. At his baptism, the voice was for Jesus' benefit. You are my son. So the baptism is God's affirmation of Jesus to Jesus. The transfiguration is God's affirmation of Jesus to us. And then the dust settles and only one emerges. Elijah and Moses, they're gone. And only Jesus remains. This is My son, listen to him. That is awesome. What an awesome experience. So there's three things that this teaches us about Jesus. First, he is affirmed by the Father and must be heeded. Jesus is affirmed by the Father and must be heeded. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and here we get just a peek of that. Brothers and sisters, God's command to you is to obey his son. God cannot himself be obeyed. God cannot be honored. God cannot be worshipped apart from the Son. Listen to him. Jesus is the one who is affirmed by God. 
So when Jesus says that he is the gate and no one comes to the Father but by me, he means it. That's why Jesus can say that his words are like, are like a rock that someone builds their house upon. But if you don't build your house on his words, then you're like someone building your house on the sand at the shore. And it will crumble. Heed Jesus. So those who would say that we can pick and choose the words of Jesus to believe and obey, they are wrong. And they are dangerous. Because if you pick and choose the words of Jesus, you do so to the detriment and peril of your soul. Second, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything there directed and pointed to him. Moses, Elijah, it's no accident that they're there. You would expect, given that the beginning of Matthew commences with Jesus, the son of Abraham, or the son of David, the son of Abraham, that that it would begin perhaps, why not have Abraham and David show up? Because Moses is shorthand. That man is so connected to the covenant that the name Moses is almost shorthand for the law. And Elijah, though he was not a writing prophet, he's not like Elijah or Jeremiah or Zechariah who, who wrote a book for us. Elijah was not even the first prophet. There were prophets before. But he was so great and so cataclysmic that he sort of becomes the paradigm of prophetic ministry, of pointing out our infractions against the law. So the, the Old Testament law and prophets become shorthand for the totality of the Old Testament with Moses and the law pointing out the requirements of God. And the prophetic pointing out that we have utterly failed. God's requirements and our utter failure. We need gospel. And so they meet with Jesus. Moses, the great covenant giver, I would suggest to you the second most important person that ever lived behind Jesus himself. He meets with Jesus. The one whom the Pharisees would say, we follow Moses. And Jesus would say to them, you know what he said? No, you don't. If you followed Moses, you would listen to me because Moses wrote about me. And this is the relational affirmation of that. Moses comes and hangs out with Jesus. We need the law. We need the prophets. And Luke specifies that they were coming and talking to him specifically about the crucifixion that was to follow. As if these two great saints, these two great cornerstones of scripture 
are buoying his spirit and, and, and strengthening his, gird, helping him gird his loins for the trial ahead because the things they attest to, God's requirement and our need had to be, had to be, had to be accomplished by the Son of God. And so they strengthen our Lord. But Jesus is not just the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Third, Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Jesus is transfigured. They are not. This was not a meeting of equals. This was two faithful servants meeting with their Lord. And it is awesome, humbling, awesome to consider that when we meet in that final glorious day, you have these awesome titans like, like Moses, like Abraham, Peter, Paul, and we stand shoulder to shoulder with them in the kingdom because every knee bows to Jesus. That's awesome. They disappear. And only one remains. The author and perfecter of our salvation. The Old Testament witness borne by Moses and Elijah are absolutely necessary. But in the end, Jesus is who we need. Jesus. They point their way to him, but after they've pointed the way to him, you must apprehend Jesus. That's why it's so essential that he was there. And that vision stuck with them. Just like I'm sure when, when you get glimpses of glory, it sticks with you. Now theirs was utterly unique. And it was given to them that they might testify to us that, hey, hey y'all, centuries down the line, it's gonna be a tough slog. But we saw the greatest glimpse of glory and it too is a promise of glimpses of glory. You will see things, brothers and sisters. Think about it. Look at your own life. How in the midst of affliction and hardship, suddenly you get a glimpse of, of God's grace and his mercy and you're, and you're strengthened and encouraged to know you're not wasting your time. That's awesome. And so we keep on keeping on. It's like in Pilgrim's Progress at, at Mount Clear, it's one of the stopping points along the way, they're given this shepherd's perspective glass. It's basically a telescope. Or a, is that a telescope? The, and from there, they catch a glimpse of the celestial city. They actually get to see the place they're trying to get. And it's wondrous and it's glorious. And, and later on, they're, they're in the valley. And they're doubting. Because whenever we experience hardship, doubts fast come. 
They doubt. And Pilgrim reminds them, don't doubt. Remember, we've seen the celestial city from Mount Clear. We've seen it. Glimpses of glory help you carry on. Remind you that even though we live in the valley, glory is coming. Jesus conquered the grave and he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And the kingdom that he inaugurated at his first coming and he showed a preview of glory at the transfiguration has continued growing. And if you think that the kingdom is the same size as it was in A.D. 33, as if a bush could be planted and years later not be bigger, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Despite war in Ukraine, despite war in Israel, despite uncertainty here at our border and everywhere, the kingdom grows. And you're a part of the kingdom by faith. And so you, brothers and sisters, are growing too. And I'm not referring to your waistline. Our God is great and our God is gracious. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for the transfiguration, for giving us a glimpse of glory, for the promise and the assurance and the comforting word that we will indeed see glimpses despite being in the valley. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself in your fullness to Peter, James, and John, and for by your spirit inspiring them to recount those words for us. Thank you. Grant that when we are in the valley and being assailed by troubles and when doubts start creeping, that we would remember the glimpses of glory and that we would indeed persevere and run the race set before us. For your sake, O oh Lord Jesus, we pray it. Amen.